the photographers that were employed by Warner Brothers from the very beginning had a hard job because they were being constantly rushed. Come on, get out of the way. We know, we got to get to the next scene. Get your picture. Get your still. But th- those photographers really did high quality work, technically and aesthetically. So it's it's uh, it's a that's part of the great legacy of the studio. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an episode devoted to the vintage film studio that's the most fun, Warner Brothers. First, photographer and historian Mark A. Vieira, author of the gorgeous Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling. Then Chris Yogurst with his full biography of all four Warner Brothers. The stuff that dreams are made of, that's what you're getting with every episode of Nitrateville Radio when you subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. Here's looking at you, kid. Well, not actually looking, because it's audio, but, you know, whatever. The French filmmaker and critic Bertrand Tavernier once called Warner Brothers an inexhaustible treasure chest. There's always another Warner Brothers movie full of snappy dialogue, lively direction by Cortez, Walsh, or Delruth, music by Steiner or Korngold, and tough, vivid stars who could kick your behind. But enough about Betty Davis. Warner's is, by some counting, 100 years old this year. At least 1923 was the year they incorporated the studio, though the four Warner Brothers had been in the movie business for a decade or so at that point. Mark A. Vieira is a photographer, vintage photo restorer, and historian who we spoke with in 2019 about pre-code movies. And his book, Warner Brothers, 100 Years of Storytelling, from Running Press, is both a history of the studio over the years and a lavish picture book full of evocative stills. I spoke with him from Los Angeles. So this is the official Warner Brothers book for their centenary. How'd you get that gig? Well, I've done uh, a number of books for Running Press, and in some of them in conjunction with Turner Classic Movies. Uh, Turner Classic Movies is not actually a a, uh, co-publisher. It's more like a signatory. Um, And... The, the books have done well. The, in particular, uh, my film noir book, uh, which you know I came out of nowhere, not known as a film noir expert, known really as a, an expert on, on Hollywood photographic history, but I, I tackled it from a totally di- different uh, point of view, uh, which is what I, I used uh, the trades to tell the story, how film noir was received when it wasn't even known as film noir. So this this book was a surprise success, and so that uh, since so many of the film noir uh, entries were from Warner Brothers, 
And since so many of the films I wrote about in my book, uh, Forbidden Hollywood, were Warner Brothers films uh, of the pre-code era, they figured I was qualified to handle this project. But I couldn't do it alone because there was a time constraint. They did, they waited a long time to decide to do it, and uh, it, so I had to have it, uh, people helping me with research, uh, specifically Alexa Foreman from Turner Classic Movies and Sloan DeForest, who's a, an author in her own right, uh, and they helped me with uh, bridging text and uh, data. Yeah, one of the things that's so impressive about your books is always just the quality of the vintage stills. Even on like Facebook, reproductions of them look so good. Without asking you to like give away all your secrets, what do you do to make them look so good? Oh, well, yeah, I wouldn't really be giving away secrets uh because, you know, what I do is available to everyone. Uh what I don't do is use artificial intelligence or yeah. <laughs> Or, or programs. Uh, I, what I uh, what I do pretty much is scan the photograph, whether it's a vintage photograph or a copy photograph, or if I'm supplied a scan by uh, a photographic library such as Nest, that's N-E-S-T, which is uh, the in-house uh, archive of Warner Brothers. I take that basic image and then really lower the contrast first of all and then uh, go in and and uh, adjust the 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 tonalities so there's a true black and a true white and then from there I go in and pretty much open up shatter detail and restore highlight detail using uh, the highlight shadow tool in Photoshop and then I used uh, the camera raw filter, which really gives you a lot of control over highlight and shadow. So it's a, what I'm doing essentially is <laughs> uh, drawing on more than 50 years as a darkroom technician, a custom printer. Sure. And, you know, when you take a negative and you put it in the enlarger and make it print, you have a, a goal, which is to make it look as round and as real as possible. Well, I'm taking that that approach to digital, and uh, it's been really uh, really working well. I've I've done what I never thought I could accomplish photographically, and what I had not seen anyone else do digitally. I've been able to accomplish with my uh, restor- digital restorations for fine art printing, and of course for reproduction in books and online. No, they're really nice. And I was interested looking at the later part of the book, photos from the 70s and 80s. I mean, it's not a period when I think Hollywood had a lush look. And yet movies that I remember having a really routine look then come out looking really nice. So were you doing basically the same things in color? Yes. uh, Every single image in the book went through my computer. (laughs) Yeah. So no matter whether you know whether it was a digital thing of Aquaman or a or a, a very old picture from 1923, it, it I I worked on it until I got it to to sing. Well, yeah, I mean it made me appreciate a lot of films that I saw when they came out and haven't thought of, you know, I haven't really thought about since. But seeing the stills made me think, damn, that looks good. I should watch that again. Yeah, I mean the, when you think about the 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 people that uh, the 
the photographers that were employed by Warner Brothers from the very beginning, you know, had a hard job because they were being constantly rushed. Come on, get out of the way. We we got to get to the next scene. Get your picture. Get your still. But the, those photographers really did high quality work, uh, uh, technically and aesthetically. So it's it's uh, it's a that's part of the great legacy of the studio is that those images. Yeah, and, and in, I tried as many times as possible if the more famous the film you know the more famous the still photos from the film would be so i tried to find the best possible uh copy or rendition of a particular photo so that it could be represented in the book that film could be represented by by a really high quality image it wasn't always easy what's a good example of that from the book well casablanca i i wanted to find a picture of uh Humphrey Bogart sitting at the piano with Dooley Wilson leaning over him. And I ended up having to combine three different photos to get the to get the quality I wanted. So are most of the photos, did they come from Warner or are they from your collection or um oh I don't have a collection. Uh no, it it was uh about uh just two three three fifths from Warner's and about two fifths from private collectors. Okay, so you don't have a collection, but you know where the collections are. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's a network. I've, you know, I've been part of a network since the mid '70s. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Warner Brothers Studio. You go through it decade by decade, and it was interesting to see how the studio evolved through the decades. If you say Warner Brothers to this crowd, you tend to get well. You you immediately see the '30s. You know, Cagney and Robinson and Betty Davis and so on. It's interesting how it evolved over time. But obviously, the same guys were in charge. I mean, Jack Warner and Hal Wallace. And yeah, what impressed me was uh, how it was really Hal Wallace and Daryl Zanuck. Uh, I mean, the brothers had a personality, had personalities, had an attitude about what they wanted to to film, but the people who implemented it were pretty much Zanuck and Wallace. Right. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking. If you really want to think about who invented the classic Warner Brothers that we all know, you know, it's probably Daryl Zanuck more than anybody. Well, but Wallace was the one who came up with the idea about the grabbing from the high the high headlines, you know, the uh getting their their ta- their stories ideas from, you know, the current events. Yeah. Which you know, it's, other studios are doing it to a certain extent, but they're more relying on uh, plays and novels, whereas uh, in many cases, you know, Warner's really just uh, created original screenplays. Yeah, so I, I, it starts in the 20s because that's when they incorporated the studio. I was so happy to find that <laughs> find that headline in, in the in the trades to be able to put it on the page. The, they they incorporated <laughs> because so often, you know, history is. is in any area is so iffy so often and to have something like that that really is a you know that locks it in is great all right so they start out and they're really pretty small time exhibitors and distributors and i don't know is it rin tin tin who really gets them going as a business yeah i mean they well they they had ernst lubitsch from the beginning and then they got john barrymore but but rin tin tin really uh, well it was really it was the first thing was that uh my four years in Germany that that lifted them up and, and gave them operating capital so that they could borrow money uh, without you know looking too too risky. 
Uh, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that all these men and all these companies, the, you know, I say men, the, the, the first generation of moguls, uh, they were all gamblers. They were all, if not addicted to gambling like David Selznick, they, they were inveterate Thursday night poker players with each other. Uh, so gamble, you know, that the whole industry was a, was a gamble, you know, from the very beginning, will people like what we're making that you never know. There is no absolute way you can do all the, the, uh, tests and, and marketing research and this and that. But until that thing plays on the screen all the way through, you do not know. And that's just, that is just the facts of life in the, in the arts. So you have to be a gambler to get involved in it at all, because otherwise you, you, you'll go crazy. Because there's there's no guarantee, and that is you know part of the, the what has changed over the years in in filmmaking and the film industry is that the the MBAs in business who go into the film industry, as opposed to people from you know a shoe repair company, yeah, <laughs> uh, four brothers uh, don't understand gambling. They don't understand art. Uh, so if a film, if people say, oh, it's changed so much, why has it changed? That's the reason, because they don't want to gamble, and they don't have a feeling for, for the art form. They, they didn't stand up in front of an audience, as Jack Warner had done, singing songs, you know, as a boy soprano in a theater to chase people out between movies. I mean, that you can't get more close to an audience than that. Yeah, you mentioned my four years in Germany, which is interesting because it really is kind of a precursor for the 30s Warner Brothers movies that are about current events. It was based on a book by the American ambassador to Germany during the era of the Kaiser. And it's interesting because it's showing people inside the country that's all over the newspapers. You know, it was something that gave them prestige when most of what they did was not exactly prestigious. Yeah, and uh, you can say in a way that... uh... Mission to Moscow was my four years, my four right. years in Germany gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they made a splash with that, but they're still a long ways from having a steady stream of product. They've got Rin Tin Tin, you know, the mortgage lifter, as their star. And those Rin Tin Tin bucks get put into hiring, as you said, John Barrymore. Right. Which was an early play for prestige that worked out pretty well. Yeah, well, it was a gamble to to even approach him because he was considered America's greatest actor. Uh, so you know, this little company goes to America's greatest actor. How's that going to turn out? But they they had they had nerve, you know. Yeah. Uh, as any gambler has nerve, uh, and they just went up to him and asked him, you know, well, if, listen, if they're going to deal with animals out of a zoo, uh, they're going to deal with John Barrymore. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, and, and he, you know, t- to give him credit, he really did bring something to movies that they didn't have, which was this uh, combination of Lord Byron and, and uh, Dorian Gray. <laughs> he, was, he was bigger than life, and he really did uh, deliver everything that they had hoped. And another thing, too, is that I didn't really get to go into this, and, but they had this great director named Alan Crossland, who directed many of the Barrymore vehicles and the jazz singer and a number of, you know, late silence, early talkies before he had a, a terrible, I think it was a car accident, killed him. Um, but they had, luckily they had someone like that. I mean, they not only had Ernst Lubitsch for a while, but they had Alan Crossland, uh, who really, in, in the 20s, got them going. And then, of course, when they get into the, 
the talkies. Wow, they've got Busby Berkeley and and uh, you know Michael Curtiz, William Dieterle, uh, uh, Anatole Litvak. They've got all these people that really propel them f- forward. But they understood, as did Irving Thalberg and Sam Goldwyn and B.P. Schulberg, Jesse Lasky. They understood. You know, the writer is very, very, very important. I mean, Thalberg said. Without the story, we've got nothing. He did not say, uh, "Don't tell the writers that." And Jack Warner, Jack Warner did not say, "Writers are schmucks with Underwoods." He never said that. So you know, I'm, I am really, really tired of this internet history, or just that that perpetuates this crap that this just that there is absolutely no basis for. And, you know, when you write these books and you go into the archives, like the Warner Brothers Archive at USC or the MGM Collection at the Academy, uh, you really do see the actual workings of these things, and it's so different than what you have been told. I mean, to see a telegram from Jack Warner to Hal Wallace that just came from the premiere uh, of uh, Footlight Parade, don't change a thing for the general run, this is really great. I mean, so that you know, that tells you a lot right there that an executive would, would uh, express himself in that way just to someone, to to a, a underling. Yeah, the other thing I thought was interesting about them approaching Barrymore so early was that it was a tactic that they used multiple times. They got George Arliss when the sound came in. They did it with Paul Muni a few years later. You know. They're not necessarily the first Warner Brothers movies that we think of today, but it was important for them in that time. And I think some of those biographical films like The Life of Emil Zola or Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, you know, are really well made and kind of underrated now. Yeah, I mean, people do. It's it's funny, you know, in film school and later, but old Warner Brothers gangster movies, right. gritty, uh, tough, you know, raw you know, for every one of those, they had they had a Dolores Costello historical epic, you know, that or Noah's Ark or whatever. I mean, you can't you can't make those kind of generalizations, right? And people tried, you know. <laughs> the other thing that I thought was interesting that you kind of call attention to is how they develop female stars. We sort of think of you know Cagney and Robinson as popping out fully formed from their first gangster movies and their careers are kind of set but they also sought out i mean they stole Kay francis and i think ruth chatterton away from paramount uh, and william powell yeah yeah but they yeah. looked at the female audience and thought you know this is something that's important to serve oh yeah because uh thalberg was doing so well in 30 and 31 with garbo shearer and crawford and warners didn't have anybody yeah. Uh, so that's why they stole Kay Francis and Ruth Chatterton uh, from from Paramount. And then a few years later, they have Betty Davis, who eventually gets referred to as the fourth Warner brother, which is kind of harsh on the one who died, who actually was the fourth Warner brother. Right, right. That's true. I agree with you. And what what she did for them was, you know, what. Uh, they had hoped that Kay Francis and Ruth Chatterton would do, but did not, which was really to, to you know, to lock in that female audience and to, to make uh, women's films uh, as profitable or more than the, the other films. 
because you know MGM was really making a lot of money off women's films, as was Paramount with Dietrich. Right. You know, and Warner's was not. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, I mean, obviously they took a big gamble on sound, and that led into being heavy on musical films, even when musical films sort of died at the box office until Busby Berkeley, you know, revives the genre. But they made the same bet on Technicolor, which didn't really pay off. Well, no, no, that uh, that they did well with that. That's see, there was the, it was the color and the music that really got them that that huge uh, profit in '29. Okay. But but it was but the wasn't so much the color; it was the musicals, the the flatness of those first musicals that that made them peter out. But when uh, but Warner's really went in whole hog for Technicolor. In '37, after Selznick had led the way, um, when when he started his independent company, and uh, MGM just couldn't really commit to it, whereas Warner's did commit to it. But then they found by by '40, they realized, okay, they do get audiences in. More people come to see a color film, but the film costs so much more to make. So for a while, in '40, '41, '42, they they kind of Put the brakes on the Technicolor contract, uh, and uh, also did more remakes, so they would have to spend less money on uh, literary properties. Yeah, yeah. So they were, you know, they listen. This, these are people who went around on a Monday, walked around the sets that had just been used on the. Uh, they just were just finished, you know. The company just finished working on a set. And said, "Okay, um, what scripts do we have that we could use this set, or should we just, you know, take it apart and, and store it? Or can we, you know, well, this set is still standing. Can we, you know, make another movie with it? Right. And this was, you know, MGM did this too. I mean, you see the the sets from Marie Antoinette in the Great Waltz, but uh, you know, the Warner's was was they were thrifty, they were, you know, demanding. They really they overworked their people." And they underpaid them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all those lawsuits were, <laughs> were, as far as I'm concerned, were much deserved. <laughs> but you know, you know, you see, just to, to complete the thought, uh, it worked for Olivia de Havilland after it had not worked for James Cagney, had not worked for Betty Davis. Right. Uh, Cagney's films away from Warner's didn't do all that well. And Davis really, you know, took a beating on that lawsuit when she went to England. And uh, it did belatedly work for her in that, okay, we'll give her some better roles. But it didn't happen all at once. It, it took about a year and a half, almost two years, to kind of gather momentum and really give her the, the, the Jezebel that she deserved. Well, and, you know, that's what I wonder, too. I mean, it took someone like William Wyler, who's a more careful filmmaker, you know, who wasn't working in the usual bang-it-out-quick style, you know, like Archie Mayo or Roy Del Ruth, you know, sort of stagey dialogue scenes interspersed with fast montages, which gave you the, the visual impression of a lot of excitement, when in reality, the filmmaking could be a little static at times. That's true. Very true. Yeah, you you, you hit that right. <laughs> well, I kind of stole that from the genius of the system, but you know, once you you've heard it, you see how true it is. I mean, the movies are dynamic, but I mean, they're mostly dynamic in the editing room. Yeah, the ones the the, the directors who were dynamic were Dieterle 
and Curtis. They really, they really thought like a camera. Yeah, and then later Raoul Walsh. Oh yes, yes, definitely Raoul Walsh. Yeah, and and of course when Wellman was there with uh, Public Enemy, Lily Turner, um, what Safe in Hell, which just came out on Blu-ray. I don't know if you, have you seen that? Yeah. Boy, they did a fantastic, fantastic restoration. And One Way Passage. That's the that's the one that's the movie that Kay Francis had a, her own print of it and would run it for people because she was so proud of it. You know, that was one of those things that I first learned about when Carol Burnett did a parody of it, and I didn't know what the movie was until years later. That, but that one was on TV a lot. I mean, I don't know if you, you weren't around then, but but uh, in the from '57 on, boy, the, <laughs> you had to hide not to see a Warner Brothers movie on TV. Well, in my hometown, none of the TV stations had a Warner Brothers package. So all those fa- famous things, you know, like Casablanca and Maltese Falcon, I'd read about them, but I I couldn't see them, at least until college. Yeah, in my case, uh, I was lucky that uh, both my high school and college allowed me to, to run, do film series. I mean, I would oh, write nice. program notes and, and find photos and everything, but uh, I was lucky that they would allow me to do that. And and they were well attended too, because people were, at that time were interested uh, in in the films. Because even though they'd seen them on TV, they were still interested in seeing them, uh, you know, on a on a screen without commercials. And it, this is what I promised too. I said you'll see them without commercials, and the quality will be much better. And in those days, those 16 millimeter prints, if you didn't try to project them too large, really were beautiful. They, they, they had great quality. And Bogart was such a draw then. I mean, he was one of the top stars in the 70s, which is a neat trick for somebody who's been dead for 20 years. Yeah, boy, that it's it's amazing. It's, it started around... Uh, it's, I remember seeing in Berkeley in the late 60s all these posters, and I said, what's going on? These movies that I... I thought I'm the only one who knows about these movies. Uh, but, yeah, it really, really took off. Uh, and... You know, and it was, in many ways, it was the college campus that that uh, that really kind of fed the whole rediscovering the American cinema uh, movement. But that you know, look at where Scorsese and Spielberg and and Lucas, they all came from that era. All right, so we get to the '40s, and Warner Brothers has a pretty good war with some pieces of luck, like Sergeant York coming out right when Pearl Harbor has happened, so everybody's excited about enlisting, and Casablanca coming out right as the real Casablanca is in all the headlines. Yeah, you can't ask for better synchronicity than that. Right, but yeah, how does the studio change in the '40s then? Well, they. They really kind of dug in their heels to a certain extent, and they they did feel they could get away with uh, mission to Moscow. I mean, it was the, the president wanted it, of course, but it wasn't. You can't blame it entirely on Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it was something that was needed, um, but you know, there was no way to defend that later. The House on American Activities Com- Committee didn't want to hear that. Yeah, but uh, they continued with the remakes in the forties. You know. I mean, I mean, they started the '40s with that, but it didn't. It didn't stop. And they're here, they're in '45 doing remake of of Human Bondage, that which they bought. They bought the negative and the print and the fine grain from RKO, just tossed them into a corner, uh, and then then made this film, which was you know, with Eleanor Parker was moderately successful, but nothing like the the the, the huge breakthrough that it had been for Betty Davis. Right. Those negatives and and fine grain decayed. The film only exists 
because Biddy Davis had gotten her own 35 millimeter nitrate print of it, and in the 60s, far seeing that she was, had it copied. But if that hadn't, if she hadn't done that, that film wouldn't exist, because Warner Brothers said, well, it's only valuable as as the fodder for a remake. Yeah, you know, it wasn't all that distinguished. Uh, you know, Constant Nymph was a remake. Uh, there were just so many films from that period that were just out and out. You know, the letter was well, both the letter and Deception were remakes of Paramount films, and again, they bought the material from the other studio and just let it rot. Uh, luckily, the the letter, the Gene Eagles nineteen twenty nine version did not rot. The other one did. The, uh, the film called Jealousy. So uh, there's a writer producer named David Stan who was able to to find that that uh, first version of the letter in the Warner's archive and and have it preserved and released and then it's you can see why Betty Davis was so impressed by the film and wanted to do her own version of it because that that this woman that Jean Eagles there was no one else like her she was like a force of nature she was incredible so the 40s kind of begin with a bang and end with a whimper for all the studios well, it ends on such a horrible note. I mean, it really the, the bottom drops out. I mean, they had the biggest year since the since the the first talkies in '46. They just it was you know, as the saying goes, we could show blank film and the people would come and watch. Right. But it then that just the next year, whoa, what a roller coaster ride! All of a sudden, they're just sliding, sliding, sliding down, 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 and you know, you look at newspapers from the period. That's what I did for the uh, film noir book, and there was terror in, in Hollywood. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's gonna, where we'll be next year. There was the, that, that was the kind of talk that they were publishing. Right. Not just saying, yeah. publishing in the L.A. Times. So, you know, they, they had to figure out what to do. And, and this is, you know, at the period when uh, Joan Crawford is, is making lots of money for Warners and Suddenly, Betty Davis is not, and that was a, a very awful situation. Yeah, Crawford is an interesting case. I mean, she'd been a big star at MGM, but they sort of let her career dribble out. Then Warner Brothers gives her Michael Cortez and Mildred Pierce, which is such an electric film, and she's good for another 25 years. That's one of the things that's so amazing to me is... I don't think any era ever created stars as long-lived as the 30s. I mean, you know, Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda were stars when my parents were growing up, and when I was, too. But the thing about something else, that it you really could say it was the late silence. Yeah. Because look at all the stars that, that, that were working in 28, 26, 27, 28. Dietrich, Shearer, Crawford. Um, Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper, yeah. William Powell, yeah. uh, everyone except for Gable. <laughs> yeah, the stars of that era. I mean, they they couldn't be stopped until they dropped dead. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, what caused the studio so much trouble? Was it just television, or do you think there was more going on? Oh, there was. There was. There were three body blows. Uh, the HUAC, uh, television, and the Supreme Court uh, decision about the divesting them of their theaters. So it wasn't just one thing, it was three things. But really television was the worst, the most uh the, the wouldn't it wouldn't it didn't pass, it didn't go away, it just kept on. Uh 
and they had to, to come to terms with it. Yeah, what did they do to respond to those? Well, they just started with the gimmicks. That the, they uh, was 3D, widescreen, stereo, adult fare, and then so so then they they had a whole new round of fights with the production code administration about you know like Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, that was a real real problem. That film. I mean, the, I I uh, was lucky lucky enough to interview. Jack Vizard, the censor who worked on that whole project, uh, I was interviewing him about the earlier period, but we did talk about that film, and we talked about Beyond the Forest, which was uh, there's something that there been there's a, a release out now called uh, Storm Warning. Ronald Reagan, Doris Day, Steve Cochran, and Ginger Rogers, and it's about the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, there's a scene where this uh, Steve Cochran gets awfully rough with uh, Ginger Rogers, and you'll notice that there's there are odd cuts and there are music cuts that seem like what's what, uh, something missing here? Yep, something's missing there. Same thing happened with Beyond the Forest, where the film was finished, soundtracks were locked, it was all mixed and locked, went out for for the previews went out for the premiere and then the production code says, Oh no, 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 you're not <laughs> going to release that film as it is. And they forced the studio Warner brothers to make cuts without being able to remix it, to remix the soundtrack or, or smooth over the cuts. So you'll see these two films, same, almost the same year from the same studio that have very jarring cuts in, in controversial scenes that show you just how powerful that production code administration was at that time. So the 50s come along, partly they venture into television, which gives them a place to showcase and train young talent. And they're actually pretty good at that, prepping young stars for stardom in this time. I mean, I suppose the biggest example being James Dean. So they have some important hits. I mean, East of Eden, The Star is Born, Anti-Mame. Don't forget uh, Moby Dick. Yeah, I was surprised to read that it was such a hit because I always kind of had the idea that it was a bit of a dud. Oh yeah, it's always that has gotten a bad rep because people were just lying in wait to attack Gregory Peck. I think, huh. and I, he, I think he did a creditable job, uh, and it's a it's a gripping movie. But no, that that's one of those things that were the popular history. People like Richard Schickel, Pauline Kael. Uh, can just jump in and say, oh, it was crappy, and people may have not have seen it and said, oh, I guess it was crappy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was not. It, it, it did, you know, like, oh, for the one that always gets me, Norma Shearer, Clark Cable, Strange Interlude, Eugene O'Neill. Oh, it was a flop. That made a lot of money. Well, yeah, I mean, it got parodied a lot, and you can't parody something if no one saw what you're making fun of. Exactly. But, but boy, these these critics... Who really began to, began to think that to believe their own publicity and to believe what they wrote? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we get into the '60s, and again, the legend is that old Hollywood didn't know what they were doing. But Warner Brothers had hits like Bullet and Bonnie and Clyde and The Wild Bunch, which suggests that they understood something about what audiences wanted to see. Yeah, well, they they understood the youth market. Uh, that that you give them credit for that. They understood that was very, very, very important. Yeah, because uh, you know, 
the the older people were just staying home watching TV. Right. And then they get into the 70s, and they have a huge hit with The Exorcist. Superman will be a big hit, Blazing Saddles. I also think the 70s sees Warner Brothers pull off, for maybe the last time, the star who's associated with one particular studio. I mean, nowadays we don't really think of that that much. But Clint Eastwood is kind of the last one to have a 50-plus year relationship with the studio. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he has to be the unique example of that. Yeah, I mean, in the old days, there were lots of ways that you could spot a Warner Brothers movie is coming from there. I mean, does the cast have Alan Hale Sr. or Alan Jenkins? It's Warner Brothers. Also, I mean, one one giveaway to me is the way the music was recorded. You know, that brassy fanfare, you know, and, and just just kind of that high, imposing brass sound in the recording. You know, I think you can always spot that as being, you know, Steiner at Warner Brothers. Oh, have, have you ever seen Casablanca on the big screen? Yeah. I, I saw a nitrate print. It was a kind of a, a special screening at the Cinematheque about, I guess, six or seven years ago. When that fanfare came on, whoa, it almost <laughs> blew people back in their seats because that nitrate film, you know, it was the first generation of the sound right on, right on that film, right from the mixer. Boy, it was strong. So you're right about that that, that unique uh, Max Steiner sound. Really, really, it, really characteristic of that studio. Yeah, after a certain point, studios seem kind of indistinguishable. And, you know, they're often co-producing anyway. So, you know, who knows who it's really from? People who are renting space at that studio. But studios kind of didn't have house styles anymore. Warner's maybe turned that around a little bit. I mean, one with Eastwood and two because they own DC Comics and that becomes such a big part of their release schedule, you know, beginning with Superman and then Batman 10 years later. And isn't it, uh, speaking of the the luck that they had with uh, Casablanca and uh, Sergeant York and the jazz singer, isn't it interesting that both the films you just mentioned came at the end of a decade when they were starting to wonder, like, are we ready for another decade? Will we make it? Will we even reach that decade? And along comes this thing that just floats them into the next decade. When meanwhile, uh, United Artists is crashes to the it crashes and burns with with that uh, Heaven's yeah, Gate. Yeah, yeah. But what, what I thought was significant was that when Jack Warner finally let go, he did it because he got tired of meetings with. Uh, Packagers and agents. He said it wasn't about the the creative process of filmmaking anymore, or even dealing with directors and talent. It was about dealing with representatives and and these you know packages. He was fed up with it. Right. So he goes off and produces 1776, which doesn't have any stars in it. Yeah. Yeah strange. So now we're in a new era. You know, we're actually recording this the day that HBO became Max, which I'm sure will be as important in film history as the premiere of The Jazz Singer. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you see for the second hundred years of Warner Brothers? Well, uh, what made these films work in whatever era, you know, whether it's Clint Eastwood or John Barrymore, is that, okay, you've got excitement, you've got action, you've got this and that, but still there's there's heart. Uh, you're not going to get a heart from digits, and you're not going to get a heart from artificial intelligence. Right. You get a heart, you 
Sacred Heart from writers who who have suffered and who love writing and who want to be there and do doing that. Uh, and until that is acknowledged and respected and compensated, uh, the, there's not going to be any more film industry at all. It's going to just, it's going to die. Uh, I don't mean to sound, what's the word, nihilistic or yeah. fatalistic <laughs> or morbid, but uh, no, I just, uh, you know, if, if Aquaman made a million dollars, it's because that man that's in it, Jason Momoa, has a heart. You can see it. He's a, he's a real person. Um, you're not going to get this with some creature in a mask. I'm sorry, but that's just how I feel. Yeah, I mean, superhero movies are basically animated. They have stars of a sort, but how often do you see one that makes you go, ooh, I want to see that guy doing something else? Yeah, that, that, that something that something special that, that catches you. And, and uh, you mentioned the Alan Hale Sr. So much of that was in the supporting people, too. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Greenstreet, for example. Right. Just... As soon as he came on the screen, you, could, you, you better believe the audience in those days was like, <laughs> look who it is. Oh, <laughs> yeah, who is that guy? Oh, it's him. Oh, he's back. Oh, boy. You know, uh, <clears throat> have you ever seen Flamingo Road? No, your book was making me think I should, though. Oh, you, uh, you are in for it. He, he, he eats the scenery and swallows it and, and burps. <laughs> you know, he's just fantastic. It's uh, for once, Joan Crawford had a, a, a someone playing opposite her, who who was her match. He should have been in a Garbo film. <laughs> <laughs> he would have matched her too. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I had seen lots of Warner Brothers films, obviously, but there were a bunch of those, you know, vehicles for the female stars that I had never seen until pretty recently, like now Voyager. And you know, I same thing for me with the Hard Way and. Um, yeah, that was terrific. Man, I love and those. Those were were trumpeted at one. There was a film festival in maybe ninety three, ninety four, that rediscovered those, and it was a big deal. And I, it took me forever to see them. But yeah, they they really are something because they're just they don't fit any of the the patterns of the of the era for those kind of films, and that's what, that's what makes them fascinating. But the fact that they could even be made, you know, uh, it's they, these guys took chances, but but. Uh, Back to what you're saying. I mean, when you saw them, did you feel that they 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 fit the studio profile, or were they more like MGM or Paramount, or what? Oh no, they're definitely you know like tough, fast-paced Warner Brothers movies. I mean, if it's somebody like Wyler, it's going to be you know longer and kind of more carefully crafted. But still, I mean, I think they all have that that Warner Brothers drive. You know who I really like is uh, Jean Negulesco. Yeah, I mean he's a, he's a good example of someone who's kind of overlooked now, but he's good. Yeah, and and so sad that that he he worked so hard for them. He learned his craft. Well, at first he 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 designed montages at Paramount in the early '30s for This Is the Night and Big Broadcast and and uh, Story of Temple Drake. And you know he he cut his teeth at Warner's, and you know he had to go elsewhere to, to make a. To make a big hit, I mean, after he got them the Oscar for Jane Womack or Johnny Belinda, and he did Humoresque, all these superb movies, and they just took him for granted. It was this very sad? He had to go to 20th to to get some respect. You know, another one you talked about was Delmer Daves. He's kind of the quintessential writer who writes his way into the director's chair. He's good with Bogart and Bacall, and then he's good with Sandra D and Troy Donahue. Major box office. 
Yeah, I was lucky to see him. In, uh, he came into guest lecture at Arthur Knight's class at USC. He talked to us about uh, filming Dark Passage. And then, the, I guess, another month, we listened to Vincent Sherman talking about uh, the adventures of Don Juan, how many of the sets were built to, for uh, Errol Flynn's left profile, um, <laughs> and also the, the 64 days that Errol Flynn was out on that film. Oh, geez. 64 days. Can you imagine? They'd, they'd shut it down now. But he was, he was legitimately ill. I mean, he really was. He had had skin cancer on his face and sure. uh, malaria recurrence. Uh, just everything hit him. But, of course, he was being bad, too, you know. You know what, what I was I, I know you're going to agree. It's Even if it's not the Seahawk, Captain Blood, or Adventures of Robin Hood, it's good in spite of being what year it is and, and, and what's, what everything's going on behind the scenes. You know, I compared it to charade. I mean, you're you're faking Hitchcock, but you're doing it with the real people who would be in a Hitchcock film. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good way to describe it, right? It's kind of a nostalgia play, a throwback, but by now to us, I mean, it's as good as the real thing. Yeah, it's like they were saying at the same time. They were saying, uh, "Oh, uh, Key Largo, it's a throwback to to our what we used to like some years back. It's a it's it's, but it's going to be the last gangster rally." They were saying that in the L.A. Times. Yeah, I saw you use that phrase, the last gangster rally for Key Largo. Well, I got it from the L.A. Times. But yeah, I don't know. You had White Heat around the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gangsters were kind of like Westerns. I mean, they were dead until the next time they they came back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although, boy, film noir really did change after 48, 49. It became a, about syndicates and and it was it was no longer about the the individual detective or the or the obsessed woman that was that was gone that was over that was from 40 from 41 to about 49 or so that and then it really did change and also the the cold war uh thing you know crept in to a lot of film noir at that point well, let's wrap up with a few recommendations for people. You know, you you mentioned uh, Flamingo Road. What are some other lesser-known Warner Brothers movies that you'd recommend people, you know, hunt up and check out? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 case of the Lucky Legs, which is Warren William, nineteen thirty-five, uh, one of the Perry Mason uh, films that he did, the best one. That I recommend that highly. Uh, Female with Ruth Chatterton, sure. a pre-code, 1933, William Wellman. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael Curtiz, Michael Curtiz. William Wellman did, did the other one, the, uh, uh, Lily Turner. Um, very, very entertaining, really entertaining. Uh, the guy playing the organ up on the wall. I want to know how he gets down. <laughs> he got up. <laughs> yeah, there's so, so many things to enjoy in that uh, studio's... Uh, um, Oh, Juarez, that's one that I... Oh, I'm a, interesting. I'm a real champion for Juarez, yeah. Uh, because I, at film school, I saw it uh, in nitrate, the vault print from Burbank, and it was like a warm... It wasn't quite sepia, but it was very warm tone. And the scene where Betty Davis is praying at the uh, Blessed Mother with with the mantilla and the, there's the candles, my God, it was like 3D... Yeah. Yeah, but so always, I guess what I should emphasize too is that you know you hear about MGM, the most the, everything had a sheen, was, and Paramount had the Paramount glow. Well, Warner's glistened. <laughs> they they really were photographically right up there. And oh, that's yes, yes. I this gives me a chance to uh, to sign off with 
my particular pet at Warner Brothers film, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Who else would bring Max Reinhardt in to make a movie? I mean, that <laughs> they really were gamblers. And it, you know, once again, it like Adventures of Robin Hood and a number of very expensive films that didn't quite break even because they were so expensive to make. Midsummer Night's Dream was well attended, but they just cost too much to make. And the same thing happened at Warner Brothers. I mean, I'm sorry, at 20th and late 30s with the rains came. The special effects were so expensive that the film could not break even. And those movies were well attended. People really wanted to see them because they were just, they were, they were a big noise. They were great stars, great story, great effect, and they just cost too much. Right. Because there were only so many theater seats. And films, films were not held over more than a week until the mid-40s with World War II. Yeah, that's kind of what's surprising to us today, is that movies were kind of one and done. And they didn't come back unless there was, you know, like a, a major reissue, like the Seahawk and the Seawolf or something like that. Yeah, and, and even that was, um, there really wasn't a reissue program as such for a long, long time. So you had to see it that first week or you just weren't going to see it again. Because, you know, the prince played the the regions. Then they, the prince came back to the studio and they stripped him of silver and had, you know, clear leader to use for editing slug. And that was it. You know, th- there was one vault print, one negative, and one fine grain positive. It was called a safety protection uh, backup. And that was it. If anything happened to those, there are about, uh, uh, let's see, 60, 80 Warner's films from between 29 and 31 that are lost because they were Technicolor and the the things just decayed at Technicolor. Yeah, and and they also had a fire, didn't they? I believe that's true, but there was also, yeah, yeah like for example, Fox Films, all those things, the pre-36 were lost in a fire in New Jersey in 37. 20th Century Fox told... <laughs> told the Technicolor Corporation, I guess in the 70s or 80s, must have been 70s because they, the Red China took over the the process in 75. Um, they said, oh, just throw away those separations. We won't need those. We've got we've got a, an orange print. Well, the, the orange prints went, so then they had to go start duping from prints. So, yeah, so so many things are lost, uh, you know, because of, of uh, just the, the fragile nature of film. Of course, the, <laughs> the fragile nature of film, uh, it's going to be interesting to see in 30 years from now what's around if if these cellulose acetate is still okay and digits have, have migrated to the point where they're not even legible anymore. You know, in, in a few decades, it could be easier to see a film from the 70s than one from the 2000s. Ooh, scary, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not demeaning any creative process of the present, but I just... We've got to be sure that it's going to survive. And I do believe that, that in many cases, they are doing the three separation uh, negatives to, you know, to, through a prism, three, three primary colors, so that the film will be preserved on film in case anything happens with the, the, the uh, digital program. Shall we just have a cigarette on it?
Warner Brothers' 100 Years of Storytelling by Mark A. Vieira from Running Press is out now. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Now I've placed the record on the, tur- on the turntable and also located the reproducing element ready to start for reproduction of the record itself. I will ask the operator now to start the rest of the recording machinery. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear toot 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 me? All right. Hold on. Hold on. Lou, listen. Play toot 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 me. Three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Warner Brothers' biggest breakthrough was The Jazz Singer, which led to all its musical hits of the early 30s and, well, any movie where an actor's voice mattered. And bringing sound to movies was the dream project of one Warner Brother in particular, Sam. Most of us don't know much about him, or any brother besides the most colorful and show-business-focused of the four brothers who ran the studio, Jack. To rectify that, Chris Yogurst, Assistant Professor of Arts and Humanities for the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, who we spoke to in 2020 about his book Hollywood Hates Hitler, offers a full biography of all four Warner Brothers titled simply The Warner Brothers from University Press of Kentucky. I spoke to him from Milwaukee and started by asking him to introduce the four Warner Brothers. Harry and Albert were both older and old world. They were they were born abroad, and um, Jack and Sam were younger. They were very different. They were they were um, the first to assimilate in a lot of ways. The first to really kind of become Americanized, and the and the ones that kind of bucked tradition. You know, Jack was the showman, as you know everybody knows. Um, Sam was the technical genius. Um, and Albert was the, the distribution whiz and Harry was kind of the, the man at the top, the business genius and, um, um, which he acquired, uh, through lots of failure before they got into the, the film biz and, um, you know, ran the show for the, the majority of the time. Yeah. I think they were like a lot of the little studios in those early years that might've just had a year and then bit the dust and then they go into the shoe business next or whatever. Yeah, well, they did. When you mentioned shoes, I mean, Harry worked with his dad um, as a cobbler um, for for some time. Um, they had they had a, a bike business where they were renting bikes. They had an ice cream shop. They had a bowling alley. Um, they they also you know they had a um, a grocery store, uh, and that's where where Harry definitely learned some hard lessons. And you know you know given the great idea of buying in bulk and then not being able to you know sell it all on time before it all spoils, um, things like that. And, you know, the, so they, they learned a lot of hard lessons when, when the stakes were a little lower. Um, I guess the stakes were always kind of high because it was, uh, you know, they were just barely getting going from nothing to something and back to nothing. But they, they, their, the resilience was just incredible. And when, you know, those first years, once they started exhibiting films, you know, they had multiple companies before, um, you know, they, they either, either failed, they lost all their money or they lost their product or 
yeah, Edison came in and the trust shut them down. I mean, the trust shut down the the Decane film company that they had uh, and, and some other ones. And, you know, they, they started using Warner, you know, Warner Bros in the late teens and used that for quite a few years before actually incorporating in 1923. But it was, it, you know, they, they finally started to gain power once they started opening exchanges in other cities and actually creating a bigger footprint where, uh, you know, Edison's folks couldn't necessarily catch them everywhere all the time. Um, and they started to, you know, that, that timed, you know, their expansion really was timed well uh, during the same time when Carl Lemley and William Fox were, you know, the two big guns going after Edison's trust and finally kicking that into submission um, so that this industry could grow without them uh, threatening every, every every time a camera was turned on, every time a film was exhibited and all this kind right. of stuff. So they were small timers who made a big leap in the late teens with a prestige picture, My Four Years in Germany. Yeah, they were, you know, in the in the mid-teens, they they got the, the radical idea to start making their own movies. And they made some small little adventure films um, Jack and Sam, uh, Harry found them some, some space to rent, um, in the Midwest and they, they made some movies, um, which by anyone who saw them um, there, I, you know, I think they're all lost, but I, anyone who saw them, uh, basically said they were awful, but they were learning, they were learning, you know, how, how to put together a production and they were, uh, it was an invaluable experience that they were learning, um, on the road with minimal resources that was going to become essential once they had their own studio, once they could finally buy property in Los Angeles. And yeah, once they got to my four years in Germany, this really, this really cemented a lot of things. I mean, you know, almost anything about Warner brothers will, will use that film as, as a good starting point and it's justified. But I think one of the things that, that this movie did was it connected Warner Brothers to some higher powers, and this is something that would be essential to everything they did in the in the you know by the late twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, where they're they're connecting with with um, this ambassador Gerard, and they they are connected with the government. They started making other other movies um, in in um, they actually made a really interesting. I'm forgetting the title of it now, but it was it was basically a, a call to uh, awareness over sexually transmitted diseases uh they you know they they were trying to get movies that captured issues of the day things we should be thinking about and i think my four years in germany you know coming out you know towards the end of world war 1 uh is is very much a warner brothers movie i mean it it's you know it's it's ripping from the headlines right. it's it's, it's right. you know it's doing everything that you know the gangster movies did in the 30s you know we see that already with with what they're doing in the late teens yeah and then they took another big bet by getting maybe the most famous actor in america john barrymore for more prestige pictures you know you're not a small time studio if you use star power and the willingness to spend money to look big exactly exactly yeah they got they, you know once you get into the the 20s they're very much interested in prestige like you said they they're trying to make themselves look maybe even slightly more established than they are um just because they know that's going to attract more talent they got J barrymore of course and then ernst lubitsch they brought over 
from Europe and they wanted a, you know, a, you know, again, same thing, prestige director, you know, what's going to make us look better. Of course, they did not work very well with Lubitsch. They, they wanted him out of there pretty quick, um, but made some, you know, made some good movies for them, got them on the map. Um, so they had, they had the stars, you know, they also had uh, Monty blue, you know, they had other names that were, that were big and you know, mostly, you know, large, I guess more or less forgotten now to the, to the layman. But I mean, you know, most people recognize Bar- the Barrymore name still. Sure. Yeah. They were, they were very smart about knowing what pieces they need to have in order to grow and make popular films, but also to attract new talent as well. Now, who was driving that at that point? Was that mostly Harry? Yeah, you know, Jack was still pretty young. He was still, you know, the kid brother. Um, and, you know, Sam was was chasing a lot of this stuff. Um, he was really running a lot on the lot you know, once they were in Los Angeles. Even, you know, they had a, they had a space before they got the the Sunset Studios. And, and Jack was certainly, you know, right there with Sam. But, uh, you know, even, even when they're trying, you know, when they realize that they're having issues with, Lubitsch, it's Harry. There's memos from Harry to the studio saying, "Look, we got to dump this guy. Um, it's not worth it. It's going to be it's going to be one one less headache if we just get rid of him." And so it, it's pretty clear that even with the the talent decisions, you know, in in the early twenties, was still Harry still had a had a pretty uh, strong hand in that, you know. And of course, after this, even though Harry would weigh in in, in future stuff, you know, once you get into the next decades, that was. That was mostly Jack, um, but in the twenties, yeah, Harry still had a um, a pretty big hand because, um, of course, he was the one that that Sam had to convince to invest in the sound technology from Western Electric and you know bringing all this on board and invest all that. So he was still he was still the one who needed to that everybody needed to uh, get approval from. Sound was Sam's big moment, of course, his last contribution, because he died of a sinus infection right as it was happening. But driving them into sound was transformative of not just Warner Brothers, but obviously the whole industry. Why was he so convinced that sound was their future? Uh, Sam was just, he he was always looking for the next thing. I mean, that that's exactly why, you know, he you know, after working for, for, you know, the, these, um, traveling, you know, Hales tours type, uh, companies, he wanted to buy his own film projector and play with it. And he saw this as, um, the next thing. He saw movies as, you know, even in the, in, you know, 1904, 1905, he saw movies as being bigger than anybody thought they were for the most part. Um, and so it was just again it it and he was he was the one I mean there's a lot of stories on who found you know who got the you know who first read my four years in Germany and all that and um you know from from what I could find the most consistent stuff it sounds like it was Sam uh and you know, so he there he was once again finding another way to make their movies uh, relevant in a new way and you know kind of maybe initiating this rip from the headlines thing and then he was doing the same thing in the twenties. What is going to be something that will make them stand out from all these other studios that maybe have more money that are more established, uh, maybe have bigger stars, maybe make more movies a year, all of this kind of stuff. You know, what was something he could control, something he could do that would, um, you know, give them a leg up, um, not only set them apart, but maybe even, you know, jump them ahead of everybody else, which is exactly what that ended up doing. Yeah, it was sort of saying, you think you're the movie industry? I'll show you what the real movie industry is now. 
<laughs> exactly. Now, one thing I was thinking as I read the book, I mean, unlike some of the other moguls, they really held on to their Judaism. You know, Harry was the one who was kind of a player in political realms, and it was important to him to kind of embody the idea of self-made immigrants. And yet it's kind of odd to me that they launched their biggest bet with such a Jewish story, and it never seemed to cross their minds, you know, is this going to play in North Dakota? Yeah. It is an interesting choice. I think a, a big part of it, um, I, I almost feel like the, the Judaism part of this was almost like a happy byproduct. And of course, uh, you know, Harry, right, like like you said, was was the, probably the most consistent. Harry and Albert, definitely the most consistent with their, you know, staying dedicated to their faith throughout their lives. But I think, the, the you know, with, with pioneering sound, you need to have somebody that sounds good through the sound system right and so i think getting somebody like jolson who was um you know obviously a stage star a singer you could do all these kinds of things that you wanted to do with sound you already had a name you know everyone knew him you at least heard him on the radio so familiar voice so i think um you know and he was doing this on the stage already so I feel like, you know, the, the first thing was, you know, you know, let's, let's get something that has some notoriety already. That's going to sound good right out of the gate, or at least as, as good as possible. Um, and, and I think by finding a Broadway singer, that was, that was probably the first important piece. And then the fact that this was, you know, a story of, of a Jewish family, um, getting into entertainment, um, is just kind of a, a perfect byproduct of of going this route uh, that also speaks to their confidence just in in a good story right that, that this is something they can relate to i'm sure you know harry was was mostly living in new york i'm sure he went and saw this um on the stage right because it's something he would certainly would have been drawn to personally um so yeah every, every you know it's it's kind of just a perfect historical moment because every single level of the jazz singer just aligns with Warner Brothers. So they get into the early sound period, and that's really the quintessential Warner Brothers period, gangster movies and all that. And, you know, and even when they're not gangster movies, you think of something like Taxi with Cagney. I mean, it's a very urban story with snappy dialogue, and all that seemed to be very profitable for them at a time when other studios were kind of teetering on the brink. Yeah, and that was a big part of that was Harry's genius i mean as soon as they made it big with the jazz singer i mean he just invested 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 and you know the bought um you know first national you know which then would become their you know main lot in burbank and um you know bought theater chains i mean you you every, it was everything i mean they were they were set up to get you know the revenue new revenue streams were already set up for warner brothers once the depression hit and that that really kept the impact of that delayed quite some time which was which was really really fortunate but you're right with the, with the urban stories i mean they you know looking closer at you know their you know what their output was every year i mean i was also reminded that they they still did invest in um you know prestige literary adaptations right i mean they did uh midsummer night's dream they did anthony adverse i mean you did all these kinds of movies but um so they were they were certainly at play in that but right of course their bread and butter was you know what really made their house style were the were the gritty urban stories and right everybody knows the gangster films they're they're fantastic but right you know even when you look at something like taxi i mean that is that is just a, a great and you know, just a perfect gritty salt of the earth kind of warner brothers story 
and even their musicals, you know, the Busby Berkeley stuff. I mean, that, you know, Gold Diggers, 1933, 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, all these, I mean, they all have an edge to them that you wouldn't see in an MGM musical, right? Which was much more dreamlike. And the, the Warner Brothers movies just had a down-to-earth reality to them that really, no, in my opinion, nobody else could compete with. Yeah, yeah. So is Jack in charge at this point, or is it primarily Daryl Zanuck? You know, he seems like the guy who was born to crank them out in a movie factory like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't um, undersell uh, Zanuck's role. Um, and, and even one thing I try to do in the book, too, I, I try to insert a little bit more of, of Brian Foy as well in the late 20s, uh, where he, right, he's you know kind of this, this leader of the, the B films throughout his tenure at Warner Brothers. But a big chunk of that, you know, what he was doing with um, Lights of New York and this kind of stuff in the late 20s really helped pioneer that that fast, uh, effective production. Um, and I think, you know, Zanuck was right there as well with him. And I think they, they both really helped um, establish this at Warner Brothers. And, and Jack, even though by by the late 20s and early 30s, certainly knew new production pretty well. But I, this was very much a team effort, and you know Jack was was certainly there. But I think that that Zanuck took it to a new level. Um, you know, Jack was still there. I mean, some of the stuff I found in in, in the book, uh, in my research, that that Jack was a, a little closer to some of these productions maybe than I previously thought, where it was like just Zanuck. But he, you know, Jack is still in here greenlighting the right stories, uh, right? He's the ones that he's the one who who approved, you know, Public Enemy. Um, and you know, there's there's great stories about William Wellman's um, son. You know, his his uh, book about his dad has some great stories in there about you know the back and forths about you know what to do with this this great story. Um, so Jack was certainly there with the eye on the right stories, and then Zanuck, of course, was was the genius who could who could uh, you know get the right you know the right people in, in the right place to to put something together that was. Um, you know, fast and punchy and snappy and exactly what we would expect from a Warner Brothers movie. And then, you know, of course, after that, Hal Wallace was was also essential in doing, you know, similar. You know, he could kind of take the reins uh, as well. As the 30s went on, it kind of shifted from fast little 72-minute movies to more of the prestige things. I mean, like the Errol Flynn historical pictures. You know, Betty Davis's stature goes up, though it took going to RKO for a human bondage to make that happen. And you've got Paul Muni, you know, as Louis Pasteur and Emma Zola, you know, which are, again, kind of the Barrymore-type prestige roles. Yeah, they definitely, and this is where, you know, even again, going back to my four years in Germany, you know, the Warner Brothers are always aware of the, 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 um, the gains to be had by, by um, licensing and adapting popular novels and plays and this kind of stuff, you know, where there's already somewhat of a built-in audience and some kind of notoriety and, and that kind of thing. So they were, you know, even though they certainly had their house style, of of you know the gritty movies they are also really good at at knowing what what kinds of prestige adaptations would also be good for their brand and and good for their stars right what 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 can we do to elevate you know that's one of one of jack warren's geniuses was knowing how to elevate certain stars you know what can we do for errol flynn or betty davis even though there was lots of of course flack between betty davis and jack warner but you know he certainly had an eye for what what could build their star power 
uh, as well. And, and, and he was great at that. In the meantime, Harry is really becoming kind of a spokesman for the industry, you know, advocating for movies as an educational tool for the government. And, you know, and this is points back to your previous book, very much interested in what's going on in Europe and the concern that fascism could get a foothold in America. Tell me more about what Harry was up to in this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Harry because this this entire book started as I wanted to do a, just a biography of Harry, just because so much of Warner Brothers is taught, you know, is, is taught, everyone thinks Jack Warner. And I think a lot of people don't realize how essential Harry Warner was into creating the brand, creating the the style, the attitude, um, the politics, the ideology, all of this stuff really comes from Harry. Jack kind of just, you know, even though he was great in what he did when it came to, you know, being outspoken about certain uh, political and social issues of the day, that all came from Harry. And Jack very much followed him uh, in that regard. And Harry had been you know, from the from the 20s was talking. Mean, he gave that that speech at Harvard about how how movies were going to be this you know the next greatest thing for humanity and you know it's something that we can use to connect people and to educate and all that he had he really had lofty ideals of the power of movies and the power of movies to help and and like you said you know he he spent a lot of time traveling back to Europe and you know once he was a, a man of of you know a, of, of power you know, he was meeting with with world leaders and lots of people and, and, and uh, you know, kind of reading the room over there in Europe. And, and he was early, early on in the 30s. He was very worried about what was going on there. And, and he could see the writing on the wall probably before anyone else, or at least he made it public that, you know, before anyone else that he could see what was really, you know, what was what we should be worried about over there. And it's, it, you know, once you see the anti-fascist movies start coming out, even the allegorical ones like Black Legion and They Won't Forget and this kind of stuff, um, all the way to Confessions of a Nazi Spy and everything after that, uh, a lot of this, this all came from Harry because he was out giving speeches either on the lot or in public, interviews, all kinds of stuff. And he, he was not shy. Uh, and like you said, was very much a spokesman for the company um, but also, you know, he took it upon himself to really be a spokesman for good. I think that's that that's one of the things that always drew me to Harry um, is that he was in so many ways. He was so different than every other mogul. Um, not only was he married to one person his whole life and faithful to his wife and, um, you know, very, very, um, you know, I guess other moguls kind of saw Harry as a square. But, I, you know, I see him as one of the you know, more respectable you know, he really tried to do good with everything he was given. And he did that with, with every bit of his being. Um, and I just find that so intriguing and interesting. Uh, and it, you really can't understate how much that, that public uh, persona of, of, of Harry's really trickled down throughout the entire company and into the films. Yeah, now, I mean, the war comes along, and obviously every studio is pro-war effort, but Warner Brothers really seems to be the official studio of the Roosevelt administration. Yeah, Warner Brothers was really on the front lines in, in a lot of ways. Of course, they kind of inserted themselves, you know, before we got involved in the war, just with their anti-Nazi movies and rhetoric, and of course, Harry defending anti-Nazi movies in front of the Senate, uh, in, in the lead up before Pearl Harbor 
and so that Warner Brothers was kind of the natural studio to reach out for when we had, you know, the Office of War Information, creating the Bureau of Motion Pictures, and this whole idea of, you know, how will how will movies help win the war? Uh, Warner Brothers really dove into that, not only with their feature films, but also with with um, with documentaries, training films, stuff like that. They used their stars. Ronald Reagan was was narrating some of these, and and of course, then also starring in you know Desperate Journey with you know Errol Flynn and, and these kinds of movies. So they were really doing you know, both the the home front feature films as well as the recruitment and training films uh, through a, a big chunk of the war. And they also had a huge number of employees that that went off to war as well. And there's there's still there's a there's a big um, plaque um, kind of monument um, on the lot um, commemorating you know everybody. Um, and it's just it's a massive amount of names. So that I think that that you know you know th- throw everything in for the war effort really. I mean that was that was true in a lot of Hollywood, but it, it was it was I think particularly true um, top down at Warner Brothers. Yeah, I thought it was very revealing of Harry in particular that every employee who went off to war got a wristwatch, a promise that they'd get their job back, and all the secretaries and script girls and so on were recruited to like to write letters from the home front to all the soldiers. You know, you always think of stories of those guys being, you know, sort of self-centered in their war efforts. And, you know, Jack did try to get named to a higher rank than Zanuck, which is kind of perfect. Yeah. It's very on brand. <laughs> yeah. So the war ends and Warner Brothers is changing. I mean, the thing I didn't know is just how much their production dropped. They're really making fewer, more expensive movies. I mean, something like Mildred Pierce is kind of just a genre picture, but much more lavishly told than it would have been in the 30s. Right. I mean, they're they're adapting popular novels, right? I mean, all of these noir films that we that we love today. I mean, yeah, Mildred Pierce and and um, you know, The Big Sleep and Have and Have Not, and these are all. I mean, these are all popular novels by big authors, right? So they're you're, you're right. I mean, they they still fit. They still fit the gritty, you know, Warner Brothers style. But they are they are definitely investing in you know popular novels, which is is um, you know I'm sure costs some money. Right, so they're still kind of working the same way they were. And then TV comes along, and it kind of throws them for a loop. You start to see that the older brothers are looking at getting out. You know, Harry's becoming more involved with politics, but also maybe just it's time to take life easy in his mind. For sure. And really, I mean, even right after the war, I mean, Harry was... He certainly, yeah, for Harry, for sure, seeing TV coming, I think he started to feel his age... And was like, I I don't know if I have the energy to figure this out. Um, Jack certainly wasn't in love with TV, but he he knew that it was something that probably had to be done. So he just he just kind of tasked other people with that. Um, but Harry, one of the things one of the things that really fascinated me um, in my in my research for this book is right after the war, Harry land, not only just asked but landed multiple meetings with uh, President Truman, and um, argued very valiantly to to bring you know all, all these refugees as many as possible to the United States, all these displaced families, 
um, and Holocaust survivors and all this kind of stuff and, and, and did a lot of research. I have like, I have a whole pile of papers of his research of how to make this work and, you know, bring them to Alaska because we have the space and we can then bring them down to the main, you know, states, you know, slowly. Um, so it's not, you know, millions of people at once. And, and he was, he was all over me. It was just, it was really impressive that he was, you know, just, just like, you know, being in the, in the early thirties, kind of the first, one of the first publicly to really jump on, you know, there's something going on. We got to be afraid of over there, uh, was also one of the first, um, to, to, to not only say we got to help the displaced people over in Europe, but also putting his money where his mouth is. He put together a plan. He did research. He, he offered to fund it. Um, all of this was just incredible Harry Warner stuff. But but you're right. He he was way more focused on on the you know the public goodwill, public service, that kind of stuff. Um, you know his his philanthropy, and you know I think that a lot of that took center stage after the war. Right. If you look at him as just a studio head, he can seem kind of unsympathetic because he was the one always complaining to Jack about how much money somebody was getting. But he wasn't a cheap guy. He used his money for his own purposes to support his causes. I mean, he had priorities, and I'm just not sure the movies were necessarily them by that point. Right, right. And his his philanthropy goes way back. I mean, he was he was paying for ambulances to be sent to Britain before we were in in World War Two, and you know, putting together, uh, you know, these these um, these these projects where these trains go across the country and, and people donate goods and food and stuff like that to be shipped across to Europe and all that. I mean, he, he was doing stuff like that constantly. And then we get the big betrayal. I think you actually call it that in a subhead. They're looking to sell Warner brothers to cash out and retire. And Jack turns out to buy his way back in at the last minute and take Harry's job. And basically Harry and Albert never speak to him again. Right. Yeah, this was a and this was something I've actually been talking to Jack's grandson, Greg Orr, uh, and we've, we've talked about this particularly a little bit. And while you, you can't, um, you know, there's really no way to sugarcoat that this was a betrayal that destroyed Harry. Um, you know, Jack actually was not and I, I probably should have been a little clearer about this in the book. Jack actually wasn't the first he wasn't always planning to, to make this. He, he got an opportunity at the last second to make this move and he took it. Um, but they were they were going to it was it was Serge Semenenko and some of his his partners that were going to buy Warner Brothers and they had an exhibitor um, Fabian that was going to come in and do the production stuff but he ran up against antitrust issues um, even after he tried to sell his theater chains and he wasn't able to take this role um, so Jack saw the opportunity and of course the you know it makes sense at least from the from the buyer's perspective that you, you there's you know of course there's there's all these companies coming in by the 50s and 60s buying out film studios but they don't know anything about making movies so they need somebody in there that that knows that and you know, one of the things i thought of the other day it's 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 similar to like gulf and western having paramount and but they have robert evans in there running running paramount because he knows movies so it makes sense from from Semenenko's perspective to bring Jack in, but of course, knowing what we know about the brothers, about what what their dad had told them about, you know, stay in it together, go out together, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Um, Jack knew that that was going to destroy his brother, right? I mean, there's there's no question um, that it was that it was kind of a dark move, but 
you know, it's it that that history. And, you know, the, the, one of the, th- the things I found for the book was was this great interview that Cass Warner did with Harry's secretary um, when she was still alive. And and we you know, she was there when he got the call and, you know, she was able to do that kind of play by play of how Harry responded. Um, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, so Jack gets another 10 or 15 years at the studio, though it sounds like Seven Arts, which was basically Ray Stark, really was the one behind hits like Bonnie and Clyde. Jack apparently didn't get Bonnie and Clyde at all. I mean, Warren Beatty's trying to say, it's like a, it's like Warner Brothers' gangster movie, and Jack's response is, the hell it is. Right, yeah, he didn't even, he didn't even understand what he was trying to argue. Well, I think Beatty said, called it a homage, and Jack's like, what does that even mean? I had an homage for lunch yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Warner, De- Jack definitely, I mean, he saw it probably about as far as he could have. And that's the one thing to keep in mind, too. I mean, as bad of a move as it was, you know, character-wise to, to you know, sneakily get back into the company, he was a y- lot younger than his brothers. You know, he wasn't he wasn't ready to retire yet. And, and, and you know, even when he was finally out of Warner Brothers, he still wasn't ready to retire yet because he makes <laughs> yeah. a couple more movies, right? He makes 1776 and he makes this Billy the Kid adaptation. You know, it, it, and until like his health started to go, his, his vision and mobility and stuff, like he was he was still trying to produce movies. Um, it was clearly just something that was that that was what drove him, and he just loved the process. Yeah. Well, now we're in the modern era, and if you look at any of the official publicity for Warner's centenary, it's all it's all about how things kept getting better and better, until finally we hit the peak of Batman and Harry Potter, <laughs> and and the vision that led us to Max. Yeah. I don't know. If the brothers could come back like the ghosts of Warner Brothers past, what would they think of AOL Time Warner or whatever it is now? Oh, it's Warner Discovery. Warner now. Discovery, yeah. They'd be very excited to be doing lots of reality TV, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird. Well, and of course we've got some of the you know, some of these marketing people don't know history at all, right? And they're you know, they're like, Oh, Warner Brothers one hundredth with Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's the you know, some of that is, is maddening. But I, you know, there, there's something, you know, I, I had the afterword of this book, uh, Michael Uslin, who is, is a, a, um, you know, he owns the film rights, film and TV rights to Batman. He's been producing those movies since 89. Um, you know, he, lo- he absolutely loves the history of the studio. And I've talked with him about this. And you're right, of course, that, you know, any, any of the marketing people today, you know, they're going to talk about, you know, what we're doing now is better than ever. You know, you're always going to see that. But it's like, I still, I still feel like there is, some of the the gritty nature. I mean, there's a reason why, um, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman's came through Warner Brothers, right? Like that. That feels like if Warner Brothers, you know, if there's anything that is a, a through and through Warner Brothers superhero movie that seems to connect to their history, it's it's the Dark Knight trilogy, um, or, or even you know the Watchmen film, which I know has polarized a lot of fans of of that um, graphic novel. But I mean these these darker and grittier superhero movies. I mean, even the, even though the 1989 Batman movie looks, you know, kind of cartoonish today, it was compared to what it was coming after, you know, really what most people knew in 89 was the, the goofy 1960s series. Adam West. Right. So, so that, that was dark. And when I was a kid watching that movie, it was, it was incredibly dark. Um, and it's still very good. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of this stuff seems to, 
you know, the, the genres of the, of the era, I, I feel like there's still a ripple effect of that past flowing through some of these movies that seems to inform, you know, the kind of filmmakers that, that are attracted to Warner Brothers. You know, it may not be the top brass at the studio that are coming in from other industries and they don't know anything about Hollywood history. But I mean, even Warner Brothers just did their, you know, they started this series of documentaries and they did a, a really quick history of the Warner Brothers. Um, and, and Alan Rohde did a great job in that, carrying a lot of the, the heavy history. But it was cool to see other filmmakers in there and, and actors and like Todd Phillips is in there and, and Matthew Modine has a great intro. And, you know, there, there's clearly people still working in the industry that have a sense of what makes Warner Brothers special. So you have, you know, the, a lot of the artistic talent, they, they seem to have, you know, that are at the studio, they seem to have a grasp of what makes the studio what it is. The Warner Brothers by Chris Yogurst from University Press of Kentucky comes out on September 5th. A link for pre-ordering it now will be in the show post at nitreville.com. Thanks to my guests, Mark A. Vieira and Chris Yogurst, and to Cita Zink from Running Press and Meredith Doherty from University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Of all the podcasts in all the world, I'm glad you had to listen to mine. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Oh, my eyes really brown. <laughs>